from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Charlie Highway men and outlaws of the land Who sworn to live in slavery or wear a convict's brand Attention pay to what I say, value it if you will While I relate the natural fate of desperate Cherokee Bill The bold and brave highway men, as you all may understand Was vanished by the natural law from the Indians' happy band From Noah to town, while I renown To the very first man he killed As their deeds entitled to desperate Cherokee Bill Desperate Cherokee Veterans of the Plains warned newcomers who just arrived at the edge of America, there's no Sunday west of St. Louis, and no God west of Fort Smith. That was the polite way of saying the frontier was the province of Indians and outlaws. Some men were both. The most famous black outlaw from the Wild West era was a Cherokee freedman, the mixed son of a Buffalo soldier and Cherokee mother. His name was Crawford Goldsby. But both the New York Times and his own mother called him Cherokee Bill. It's the middle of November, 1894, in the land called Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma. A wagon lifts up over the horizon. There's a man seated at the reins, driving the wagon team of horses. He's someone local newspapers would call, quote, a prominent citizen. He's returning from Tahlequah, capital of the Cherokee Nation. The prominent citizen spots two riders in the distance. The men appear to be cowboys. They're riding their horses hard at full gallop. Looks like they're running from a posse. The wagon driver pulls his team to a stop. The two cowboys head for the wagon. The prominent citizen sees the cowboys are heavily armed. He immediately regrets his decision to stop. The cowboys both clutch Winchester rifles, as if they expect to shoot at any moment. The riders come to a stop. The dust cloud catches and then overtakes them. It covers the prominent citizen in a fine mist of earth. One of the riders wears a cowboy hat low over his eyes. The sullen one is known as the Verdigree Kid. The other cowboy is far more engaging, downright charming, talkative, excitable. He's also bleeding from two fresh gunshot wounds. 
The prominent citizen recognizes the charming outlaw. It's Cherokee Bill. He boasts to the prominent citizen about surviving a gunfight, a shootout with U.S. Marshals and officers of the Cherokee militia. The outlaw admits that they were lucky to escape. The fresh gunshot wound in his thigh confirms his opinion. The prominent citizen asks, does the outlaw need a doctor? Cherokee Bill laughs. <laughs> Doctors are precisely the type of citizen who take advantage of someone in his weakened condition. The prominent citizen continues to make small talk, still secretly terrified the bad men will steal his wagon. But Cherokee Bill operates according to a code of his own. He doesn't prey on the weak like some other highwaymen might. He takes pride in his profession as an outlaw. Cherokee Bill tells the man where he's headed, south, to rejoin the Bill Cook gang. Then the two desperados ride off, just as hard as before. The prominent citizen returns to town unharmed. He tells the local newspaper man of his encounter. A news story is quickly written. Cherokee Bill, though young in his years, being only 19, is a hardened criminal and has no regard for human life, having several murders to his account in his short career. He says that he will die with his boots on, and that some of the marshals will bite the dust too when he does. A score of deputies are on his trail. Good to his word, more U.S. marshals would die before Cherokee Bill met his violent end. a long road for us we taking ownership over everything owed to us royalty we surrounded by our heritage our fist up because we proud to be american i'm zaren burnett welcome to black cowboys an iheart original podcast hey ask yourself what's really in the name sitting on a mustang riding through the plains buffalo soldier the king of the range we in love with the cowboy way. Chapter 2. The Outlaw Cherokee Bill. I admired my father from the time I can remember. And luckily, he was worth admiring. He was a fair person. He was very clear about what he was doing and why and whose idea it was. He had a strong sense of honor. He didn't uh, dance around issues. He had a way of life that he wanted to live, and his decisions all went with that. That's my pop. It's impossible to understand me until you know something about him. It's impossible to understand the outlaw Cherokee Bill until you understand his father. Cherokee Bill's pop loomed large in his young son's imagination. His father shaped what it meant to be a man. He was a Buffalo soldier, a proud man who bent his knee to no one once he was free. George Goldsby was born in Alabama, the son of an enslaved woman and her master. He was taken to fight in the Civil War by his master. But during the madness of battle, he ran away from slavery and joined the Union Army. He preferred to fight for his people's freedom. After the Civil War was over, George re-enlisted in the U.S. 10th Cavalry. It was one of the two all-black cavalry companies known as the Buffalo Soldiers. In 1879, lawmen, the Texas Rangers, showed up at Fort Concho, Texas, where Goldsby was stationed. They had a warrant for his arrest and presumably his lynching. I was accused of being implicated in a fight or a riot down there, and I saw that race prejudice was so strong that although I was not guilty of the charge, I deemed it advisable to get away from there. An article in a 1901 issue of Collier's recounts that fateful night George Goldsby got into it down in Texas. One day, a Buffalo soldier rode into the town closest to Fort Concho. A short while later, the horse returned, but with no rider, just blood on the saddle. Sergeant Goldsby and his Buffalo soldiers rode into town to find their missing man. One version of the story says the Buffalo soldiers discovered their man had been beaten by a mob of local racists. In Collier's version, the soldier was shot off his horse. Either way, it was a hate crime, although no one in the press would have called it that at the time. The Buffalo Soldier's blue uniform had been torn apart. The chevrons indicating his rank were cut off by angry, bitter, defeated Southerners. The Army soldiers took their wounded man back to Fort Concho. That night, Sergeant Goldsby addressed his men. Here is what one of the soldiers in Goldsby's unit recalled from that night. He misremembered his sergeant's name, calling him Gadsby instead of Goldsby, but historians agree whether Gadsby or Goldsby, it's the same man, Cherokee Bill's dad. We held a meeting in the quarters, and the sergeant, he made a speech, and the soldiers was wild. He ended up saying if we was men to come on. Under the cover of darkness, the Buffalo soldiers snuck out of the fort. 
Each man was armed with two Colt 45 six-shooters. The soldiers walked three miles back to town. When we got there, Sergeant Gadsby opened the door and 21 soldiers walked right in, single file, and faced the bar. The room was full of men. Must have been 35 or 40 Texicans in the room. They were mighty surprised to see us, the soldiers, I mean. Black men were not welcome in saloons in Texas, not even if they were serving in the U.S. Army. The sergeant was the last one to come in, and he locked the door, and he put the key in his pocket. Imagine that moment, what that must have felt like for everyone locked inside that saloon. We were all facing the bar. What will you have, gentlemen, says Gatsby. Whiskey, we said. You could hear the heartbeat in that room while he was pouring our drinks. The soldiers slammed their whiskey. As we put our glasses down, Gatsby says, Bowed face, give him hell. And then every soldier turned his gun loose. You couldn't hear your own gun go off, and you couldn't see nothing. The gunfight didn't last long. One white man came a-crawling through the smoke toward the door. The sergeant shot him as he lay. When we got outside, we reloaded and waited, but only seven colored soldiers came out of Bill Powell's saloon. Some of them was bleeding, and then we went back to the post. The white Texan's anger was embodied in the authority of the Texas Rangers. Through the reach of local law, the citizens demanded Sergeant Goldsby be lynched. At the time, Texas led the nation in lynchings. They called it Texas Justice. Many, if not most, of the Rangers were former Confederate soldiers and officers. The Civil War was not yet over for them. They remained dutiful agents of the cause of white supremacy. So, Sergeant Goldsby did the smart thing. He went AWOL. George Goldsby's wife, Ellen, worked as a laundress for the U.S. Cavalry at Fort Gibson. She'd been waiting for him for nine months. But upon his return, he told her that the Texas Rangers were hunting him down. He couldn't stay long. Their eldest son, young Crawford Goldsby, born on February 8, 1876, was now three years old. The Buffalo Soldier's son was just old enough to remember his father's return after being gone so long. Perhaps he was even old enough to understand why his father was on the run. A few days later, without explanation, Sergeant Goldsby rode off. It was the last time the boy, who would become Cherokee Bill, ever saw his father. Pop, you uh, always uh, made it clear to me that we have Native ancestry, and it was always very important to me growing up. Uh, But did our family ever think of themselves as Cherokee freedmen on grandmom's side? There was a Cherokee freedman in our family. Dave Gaddy, my great-grandfather, was the son of a man who was half Cherokee and half African. His father disappeared into the Cherokees, you know, into the uh, nation with them, and then uh, produced a child. And then they, then they caught him. <laughs> they caught him and the child and <laughs> brought him back to the plantation. They knew 100% who his father. And you see a picture of him. He's jet black, has straight hair like, like a, a sitting bull, you know, and, st- and steel gray eyes, you know. It was funny. We, there were so many people in my family, like my mother, who looked, who looked like an Indian. And we knew about Dave Gaddy's father and all that. So we were very aware of the Cherokee presence in that. And we, th- we had a certain amount of pride in that. Like, let's say, in like playing cowboys, you know, most of us wanted to be the Cherokee. <laughs> we, we, we didn't want to be the cowboys. <laughs> we, had, we had bows and arrows, you know. We didn't have, we didn't have uh, pistols and belts. We had bows and arrows. We played cowboys in the woods, but, but the Cherokee were chasing the cowboys out. <laughs> so. Ellen Goldsby was half black, a quarter Cherokee, and a quarter white. She was considered a Cherokee freedman. In order to stay close to her family, she had raised her children in Indian territory. After her first husband left, Ellen Goldsby remarried, becoming Ellen Lynch. Her new husband was also a Buffalo soldier, but a terrible stepfather to young Crawford Goldsby. Mean and violent. As Crawford's teen years dragged on, in order to grasp some independence, he got himself a job. A local shopkeeper said of the young Crawford, He was the best working, the most honest Negro boy that worked for us. But he was also restless. So Crawford Goldsby got a new job. He became a cowboy. Crawford Goldsby worked breaking colts. He was damn good at it. He worked a few seasons for a cattleman named Jim Turley. In 1937, the cattleman Turley was interviewed for the WPA collection of oral histories. He recounted how his family met Cherokee Bill. 
Jim hired a young colored boy who came up to their place looking for work. This boy wearing a ragged cap was barefooted and coatless, and he said his name was Crawford Goldsby. The colored boy stayed with Jim's father and did the chores for his room and board. The cattlemen liked him so much, the ranchers lent him a horse, so Crawford could go visit his family. The teenager promised to bring it back. Crawford Goldsby was good to his word. Crawford was gone for about three weeks, but came back with the horse and saddle. But something bad had happened in those three weeks Crawford was gone, something that would change the course of his life forever. Crawford asked for help. He asked Jim for advice on what to do about him killing a man at Fort Gibson, and Jim advised him to go back and give himself up to the marshal. Crawford didn't do that. When the spring of 1894 rolled around, Crawford Goldsby was 18 years old. One night, Crawford chose to attend a dance in Fort Gibson over in the black section of town. Jake Lewis was a Cherokee freedman, slightly older than Crawford. He was a local tough, a brawler. That night, he decided to pick on Clarence Goldsby, Crawford's little brother, just a year younger. Crawford stepped in to protect his little brother. That didn't happen. Instead, Crawford Goldsby got his ass stomped. It might have been a fair fight if a deputy sheriff hadn't pulled his revolver on Crawford as Lewis stomped Crawford into the ground. Some of Lewis's friends even joined in. It was like a prison fight on the prairie. Crawford wasn't just bloodied and battered. He was publicly humiliated. That was one feeling he couldn't abide. Bruises would heal, but his reputation wouldn't. The next day, Crawford found the bully Jake Lewis working at a horse stable. Crawford shot him three times, or four times. It depended on who told the story. After he thought he'd killed the man who bullied his brother and wronged him, Crawford Goldsby stole a horse. He rode hard for the safety he could find deep in the Cherokee Nation. At a place called 14 Mile Creek, the notorious Bill Cook gang was hiding out. Crawford rode up and asked to join him. He was now officially an outlaw. That's when Crawford Goldsby became Cherokee Bill. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Pop. As you've put it, you've been something of an adventurer. What do you think it means to be a black outlaw in America? Being an outlaw in America 
for me is living almost a completely lawful life. The first part of being an outlaw, I think, is to be a free person. You have to be a free person to live outside of a system. You have to be free yourself and confident that you can achieve it. And then you have to set open to get a set of rules for your conduct and stick to them. And they can't be in defiance of anything. They can't be against anything. They have to be just for you. Cherokee Bill immediately took to the outlaw life. After he'd killed his first man, he carved a heart into the wooden stock of his Winchester. Then Cherokee Bill added a spear through the heart, like a pirate flag. It was his mark. He kept that same rifle from the first day he joined the Bill Cook gang until his final day he spent free. His Winchester was a tool of his outlaw trade and a totem of the myth he told himself. Cherokee Bill was something of a flashy man for the prairie. He favored Mexican-style flat-brim hats, white with a wide, eye-catching red band. He'd decorate the band of the hat with a feather. When he walked, you could hear him coming. He preferred Mexican-style jingle spurs. To match the flash of his spurs, his chaps were studded with metal. A line of metal dots outlined his long legs. He cut quite a figure on the prairie. He looked like a black Cherokee Zorro. But... He wore no mask. He was proud to be an outlaw, seemingly unafraid of the consequences. He's 18 years old and hell-bent for the hangman's noose. Bold Cherokee Bill and his comrades rode out one afternoon Not thinking about the hand of death that might overtake him soon The sheriff's posse did advance They came quickly on the hill The sheriff's posse did advance to take Bold Cherokee Bill Cherokee Bill Says Cherokee Bill to his comrades If you prove true to me Today we'll gain our liberty And ride most manfully We'll stay with you Says Bold Bill Cook To surrender we'll never agree Although there's a dozen of them And of us there is only three Be gone from me you cowardly dog Surrender I never will I will fight this day until I die Says Desperate Cherokee Bill Till I die says Desperate Cherokee Bill The Bill Cook gang was made up of black Cherokee freedmen like Cherokee Bill. There were also a few white Cherokees like Bill Cook and his brother James. There were Mexicans, a few non-Cherokee Indians, Choctaw and Muscogee Creek, and of course, a few black cowboys. But that's how life was in the Indian Territory. There was even a pair of young white cowboys, new to outlaw life, drawn up from Texas to go find, as they put it, quote, either diamonds or shackles. Guess which one they found. Many of the bad men had outlaw names. There was, of course, Cherokee Bill, but there was also Comanche Bill and Six-Toed Pete. There was the Verdigree Kid, as well as Texas Jack and Dynamite Dick. The infamous Bill Cook gang was best known for robbing trains and stagecoaches, and sometimes they hit banks. Standard outlaw stuff. But as their success accrued, their ambitions grew larger. One day, the gang got wind the federal agent was going to be handing out money— lots of it, to anyone who could prove they were a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. But to understand why that federal agent would be coming to town with a wagon full of money, we have to talk about how the Cherokee arrived in the Indian Territory and why the U.S. wanted their land yet again. There was a wide stretch of grassland near Kansas called the Cherokee Outlet. It was roughly 60 miles wide and 200 miles long. It's the part where the finger of Oklahoma meets the rest of the state. This Cherokee Outlet wasn't just a plot of land. It was roughly the size of three small states. For obvious reason, the U.S. government wanted that land to settle. So the U.S. government did what it does best. It forced the Cherokee Nation into a bad land deal. The Topeka State Journal recounted all the land losses of the Cherokee Nation and its many, and I use their term, business dealings with the U.S. government. In 1721, the Cherokees dominated vast tracts of land in the east and southeast. In that year, they ceded to South Carolina 1,679,000 acres. Since that time, they've sold or disposed of by treaty no less than 87.8 million acres to the United States. The Cherokee Indian is not much of a businessman. Out of all these transactions, he received but $2 million. For the strip, he received $8.6 million, but only after a hard fight with the U.S. government. Nowhere does that news story mention that in May 1838, President Martin Van Buren, following in the racist steps of Andrew Jackson, sent U.S. troops to violently enact the removal of communities of the Cherokee Nation from their lands east of the Mississippi. 
It fails to recall that the Cherokee were herded together like Mustangs. It leaves out that any person who attempted to flee federal troops was shot. That's how the U.S. conducted its so-called business deals. The forced march of the Cherokee to Indian Territory is remembered as the Trail of Tears. A quarter of the Cherokee population who made that march died on the way to their new allotted homeland. That's hardly what anyone would call a business deal. In the rare instance of the Cherokee outlet, the U.S. opted to buy land from natives rather than just taking it. That is purely due to the Cherokee self-regard and negotiations. But let's be real about it. Negotiate is a kind word for what the U.S. did. For years, cattlemen had paid the Cherokee to rent the grasslands of the Strip for grazing. To jumpstart negotiations for the land, in 1890, President Benjamin Harrison forbade grazing there. Congress passed that into law, which made it impossible for the Cherokee to rent their land to the cattlemen. The Cherokee Nation eventually agreed to sell the outlet to the U.S. government. After the sale was complete, the U.S. government almost immediately announced it planned to give away the newly bought land to, you guessed it, settlers, and for free. They called it a land run, and no one called the U.S. government a thief or an outlaw. Cherokee Bill and the Bill Cook Gang focused on the $8.5 million the U.S. government had paid for the land. So they waited until the following spring when the money for the outlet would be distributed equally among all the citizens of the Cherokee Nation. This included Cherokee freedmen like Cherokee Bill and his family. Only Cherokee Bill planned to steal it all. Ironically, that made it a very American plan. On June 15, 1894, a federal agent came to Tahlequah, the capital of the Cherokee Nation, to disperse payments. Cherokee Bill and the others saddled up and rode out to catch the stagecoach, the one with the federal agent and a big bag of that Cherokee outlet payout cash. Cherokee Bill and the gang robbed the federal agent and then rode hard back to their hideout. Sheriff Ellis Rattlingord was a veteran of the Cherokee Light Horse, who were the Cherokee Tribal Police. He was a deeply respected lawman. He heard word about where he could find Cherokee Bill holed up. With the element of surprise on his side, Sheriff Rattlingord felt like the Bill Cook gang was as good as caught. He gathered up a ten-man posse and rode out to capture the outlaws. Cherokee Bill was the one to spot the posse. He was outside having a smoke under a wide shade tree when he spotted a dust cloud the sign of riders approaching. He watched the cloud intently until he could make out individual riders, 10 men on horseback, a posse. He recognized one man by his brilliant white horse and wide, flat-brimmed hat, Deputy Sequoia Houston. He was a handsome, full-blooded Cherokee lawman, a five-year veteran known as a marksman shot. Cherokee Bill crushed out his hand-rolled cigarette, picked up his Winchester, and ducked back inside. Sheriff Rattlingord rode up, brave and stout in the saddle. We have you boys surrounded. Might as well give up. Cherokee Bill shouted back. We will never do it, but we will swap out with you. Cherokee Bill drew aim at the man he recognized. With one squeeze of his Winchester's trigger, Cherokee Bill shot the 32-year-old Sequoia Houston right off his white horse. The handsome lawman died almost instantly. The rest of the sheriff's posse fled from Cherokee Bill's deadly Winchester. The outlaws snuck out the back and escaped under the cover of darkness. The outlaws all knew the Cherokee Light Horse and the U.S. Marshals would demand revenge for the death of dear departed Sequoia Houston. The only one who was unafraid of that fact was Cherokee Bill. Throughout the summer of 1894, Cherokee Bill continued to rob whoever and whatever he wanted, an outlaw on a crime spree. He was particularly fond of robbing trains, those smoke-belching locomotives packed stuffed with soot-faced settlers, the ones that were obliterating the wildness of the West. On October 23, 1894, the Daily Oklahoman reported on Cherokee Bill's latest spectacular train robbery. The train was going at a speed of about 25 miles per hour, and when within 100 feet of the switch, a man sprang from behind an embankment and threw the switch for the sidetrack running the train into a string of empty boxcars. The outlaws hopped on the wrecked train and searched the cars to see if there were any big shots to rob. There weren't. But there were a few lawmen on the train. The embarrassment was they'd been sent to handle the lawlessness of Cherokee Bill, and they had immediately failed. According to the newspaper accounts, the marshals were caught flat-footed. 
The attack was so sudden that they were all covered by Winchesters in the hands of the bandits before they had time to make a move. Deputy Marshal Heck Bruner would come to take all this embarrassment quite personally. Cherokee Bill's legend as an outlaw folk hero only continued to grow. The most important lawman in the territory was Marshal Crump of Fort Smith. He hated to admit it, but he was losing control of the territory, so he wrote to Washington. Later that same month, the U.S. Attorney General announced, The U.S. government had officially declared war on the outlaw Cherokee Bill. In news stories from coast to coast, the name Cherokee Bill became synonymous with outlaw. Being that he was, quote, a Negro outlaw in Indian territory, the media of the day, just like our media of today, went out of their way to clutch all of their pearls. His crimes were somehow more savage. Some newspapers reported he had a new outlaw nickname, Gorilla. That was a flat-out lie. But in response to the outlaw Gorilla, the U.S. government promised violence to calm the citizens' fears. The October 28, 1894, Sunday morning edition of the Los Angeles Herald reported on the manhunt underway. At perhaps no time in the history of crime and bold outlawry has this country been in such a fever of excitement and universal dread as at the present moment. Martial law has been declared and is enforced strongly at every point in the nation. There are 300 Cherokee militia in the field approaching the stronghold of the outlaws from the east and north, while Indian police are scarring the country toward the west. A large force of United States Marshals have gone straight into what is supposed to be the home of the gang near Red Fork. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. At the end of 1894, after Cherokee Bill spent the summer on his lawless spree of train robberies, bank robberies, shootouts with lawmen, the 18-year-old outlaw wrote to his sister and asked her to come see him. He missed her. She wrote him back and promised she'd come visit. Georgia Goldsby told her husband, Mose Brown, she planned to take the train to visit her little brother, but her controlling husband forbade her to go. Being a Goldsby, she ignored her husband's command. Mose Brown warned her if she went, he'd go with her. Georgia responded with a threat of her own. You always mistreated Crawford. That was the cause of him leaving home once. And he told you, 
He would kill you someday if you didn't leave him alone. You had best not go about him or molest him again. From a local newspaper account, we learned what happened next. On Saturday afternoon, December 29th, he, in company with his brother-in-law, Mose Brown, were at the house of a colored man named Frank Daniels, a few miles west of Talala. There had been trouble brewing between the two men for some time past over the rather brutal manner in which Brown treated his wife, who was the outlaw's sister. Cherokee Bill made sure Mose Brown never hurt anyone ever again. Cherokee Bill walked his brother-in-law away from the homestead over to a small grove. The two men talked where no one could hear them. After a while, the outlaw made his brother-in-law head back toward the house. Then he shouted, Move faster! But Mose Brown didn't move fast enough for Cherokee Bill, so he fired three times. Mose Brown stumbled, he fell, and died. Cherokee Bill stood over the dead man, he kicked him, rolled him over with his boot, then shot him twice more. No longer an abusive husband, Mose Brown was rendered into a meal fixed for the coyotes and turkey vultures. Cherokee Bill holstered his Winchester, remounted his horse, and rode off. Soon enough, he was lost to view. He disappeared over the wrinkled brow of a distant hill. Where does one determine that line of morality of like, I'm going to take this man's life because he harmed my sister? It is something that both you and I agree on, but where is that line drawn? I think it's drawn right there. If somebody has infringed on your on your sister like that, and is also a continuing threat, you know, then, then to me, that's self-defense. I know the police don't see it the way, and neither do the courts. So this is what I talked earlier about, about my code of conduct. To me, that's self-defense. So I would have no trouble doing that. But it would have to be because the person was an ongoing threat. Do you find that that is important, that we individually also have a relationship with what we determine to be justice, especially in a country that has been unjust to Black Americans? I think most people need uh, an external set of rules for them because they can't they can't consistently apply rules to themselves. I, I can. <laughs> <laughs> How it can one determine uh, their own code of conduct as a black man in determining justice in an unjust uh, country? See, I, I don't think America is an unjust country. Really? Yeah, I, th- I think there are a lot of people who are prepared to be, who are wor- prepared to work in an unjust way. But the, but the country itself structurally is just and, and is always moving towards justice. That's why the unjust stick out so bad. In the face of so much systemic injustice, Black people have a historical requirement to insist on justice. But I don't think justice changes. As word spread that Cherokee Bill shot his brother-in-law to death for abusing his sister, Georgia, the men of the Indian Territory understood why. It was a form of lawless justice. But women who heard the story felt differently. They related to his sister, and thus many rejoiced at what Cherokee Bill had done. Violence against women was far too common on the prairie. It was less enforced than a property crime like horse theft. The fact that Cherokee Bill defended his sister, a Cherokee freed woman, saving her from her abusive husband and his extreme violence, this too was a big part of his outlaw folk hero status, at least in the Indian Territory. Cherokee Bill was also popular with women just for being a charismatic cowboy. In particular, Maggie Glass had her heart set on the 18-year-old outlaw. Like him, her people were also Cherokee freedmen. On January 29, 1895, Maggie Glass planned to celebrate her 17th with a big birthday party. Cherokee Bill promised he'd come, even though he was on the run. The U.S. Attorney General had sent a militia to hunt him down. Hanging Judge Parker had placed a $1,300 bounty on his head. Wanted, dead or alive. But Maggie Glass wanted to see her beau, so Cherokee Bill promised her he'd be there. There was one big problem for their plan. Her uncle, Ike Rogers. He was a black former U.S. Marshal. He'd often worked with the famed lawman Marshal Bass Reeves. Remember that name, because we'll get to him in the next episode. He was a legend all of his own. But Ike Rogers, he was not. He was the shady sort. On Maggie Glass's birthday, Cherokee Bill rode up to Ike Rogers' farm. Something wasn't right. His girlfriend told him to leave. Maggie urged him to get back up on the horse and ride for the horizon. Cherokee Bill didn't listen. Instead, he sat down and played cards with Ike Rogers, but he kept a wary eye. Ike suggested Cherokee Bill take his Winchester rifle off his lap and maybe lean it against the wall. That way, he'd be more comfortable. 
That's something I never do. Ike offered Cherokee Bill a glass of whiskey. He'd secretly doctored up the amber booze with morphine, but Cherokee Bill politely declined the offered whiskey. Ike Rogers waited for the right moment to strike. It never came. Hours passed. The birthday girl grew bored. Maggie Glass went to bed. Around four in the morning, the men were through playing cards and turned in for the night. The next morning, after breakfast, Ike Rogers feared his best-laid plans were failing. I know that we had to make a break on him pretty soon. I was afraid the girl would take a hand in it when trouble began, so I gave her a dollar to buy some chickens at the neighbor's just to get her out of the way. With his girl gone, Cherokee Bill's luck was about to run out. Bill finally took a notion that he wanted to have a smoke, and he took some paper and tobacco from his pocket, and he rolled a cigarette. He had no match, so he stooped over towards the fireplace to light it and then turned his head away from me for an instant. That was my chance, and I took it. But Ike Rogers didn't draw on Cherokee Bill. Instead, he suckered him from behind. There was a fire stick lying by on the floor, and I grabbed it and I struck him across the back of the head. I must have hit him hard enough to kill an ordinary man, but only knocked him down. My wife grabbed Bill's Winchester, and we three tussled on the floor full 20 minutes. Cherokee Bill fought for 20 minutes to stay free and wild. I thought once I'd have to kill him. His great strength, his 180 pounds weight, but finally we got a pair of handcuffs on him. He promised me money and horses, all I wanted, and then he cursed. We put him in the wagon and started for Nawada. A local reporter at the jailhouse collected Cherokee Bill's thoughts on his capture. I am 19 years old and was born and raised in the Cherokee Nation. I have been on the scout for several years and was never caught before. I would not have been caught this time if I had listened to my girl. News of his arrest made headlines around the country. So I remember being uh, uh, very little, and if you would get upset, you insisted that I look you in the eye. I couldn't look down at my feet if I was getting yelled at. If I had done something wrong, I very much remember that. <laughs> you didn't do much wrong, but I no. would make you look me in the eye. <laughs> yeah. it, it stood me well in the future, because now, like, anytime a man yells at me, I'm like, this is nothing. <laughs> like, I... <laughs> that was me. My, my, my dad's eyes were turning black when he got mad. Mm-hmm. And, and he had to look in his eyes up and shit, but my eyes turned black, too, so we'd be both sitting there, black eyes. <laughs> <laughs> when Cherokee Bill faced justice in the courtroom of hanging judge Isaac Parker, the outlaw's body count had become rather staggering. In his short time as a bad man, he'd killed five people for certain. Deputy Sheriff Sequoia Houston, a trained brake man named Samuel Collins, a barber, J.B. Mitchell, his brother-in-law, Mose Brown, and lastly, Ernest Melton, a handyman, whose murder was the reason for the trial. Hanging Judge Isaac Parker had certainly earned his nickname. On May 10, 1875, his first session as the new judge of the federal court at Fort Smith, he tried 18 men. All 18 men were up on murder charges. 15 men were convicted by a jury of their peers. Judge Parker sentenced eight of the guilty to hang. Starting with that first day, Judge Parker operated his court six days a week, and over his career, he tried 13,490 cases. He sentenced 160 people to be executed. 79 were hanged. Many never lived long enough to make it to the gallows. Bodies were constantly dropping through the trap at Fort Smith. The hangman's noose stayed warm. Ironically, though, Judge Parker was against the death penalty. He hated it, but he followed the law to the letter. In a federal court, that meant men guilty of a capital crime hanged. To save her son, Cherokee Bill's mother hired the best lawyer in the territory. Every day, regardless of heat or the stink in the courtroom, she and his sister Georgia sat in that court to ensure the outlaw they loved got a fair trial. The jury debated for 10 hours straight. The next morning, they returned a verdict. Guilty. His sister and mother wept. The judge sentenced Cherokee Bill. Hang by the neck until you are dead. He set the date of execution for June 25, 1895. Cherokee Bill's lawyers petitioned the Supreme Court to intervene. And surprisingly, the court agreed to consider Cherokee Bill's case. Judge Parker ordered a stay of execution to give the Supreme Court time to deliberate. Cherokee Bill's lawyers also asked President Grover Cleveland for clemency, and reportedly the president began to seriously consider it. But Cherokee Bill didn't leave his fate up to the federal government. Few, if any, member of the Cherokee Nation still trusted the United States of America. 
Cherokee Bill was being held in the federal jail under Fort Smith. It was known as Hell on the Border. He was locked up with some of the wildest men captured by the law. The stench was reportedly so bad in that jail that in the spring and summer, a horrid, putrid smell often polluted Judge Parker's courtroom. It was located one floor above the jail. Somehow, while he was behind bars, Cherokee Bill bought a gun from a corrupt deputy and hid it in his cell. The jail deputies, known as turnkeys, were sometimes lax with the rules. One hot summer night, they'd allowed prisoners to stay out of their cells an hour past curfew. That was a mistake, the kind that Cherokee Bill had waited for. Still inside his cell, Cherokee Bill decided it was the right moment. Two deputies came down to Murderer's Row to lock up the prisoners for the night. When they reached Cherokee Bill's door, the key wouldn't go into the lock. It was jammed up with paper. Cherokee Bill shoved his cell door open. He drew his revolver. The element of surprise was on his side. Throw up and give me that pistol! Turnkey Deputy Lawrence Keating reached for his pistol. A fatal mistake. Cherokee Bill fired, catching Keating in the belly with a bullet. The deputy staggered, clutched for his gut. I'm killed, the deputy said. He collapsed, well and truly dead. Marshal Heck Bruner arrived on the scene. After being embarrassed by Cherokee Bill during a train robbery and shootout, the marshal brought a certain amount of overkill to the jailhouse gunfight. He fired a shotgun into the cloud of gun smoke. It boomed with authority but it claimed no victims. Cherokee Bill poked his gun out of his cell. He took an unaimed shot at Marshal Bruner. He gobbled like a turkey. It was a traditional Cherokee war cry, a promise of certain death. An inmate named Henry Starr shouted to the deputies, if they promised not to shoot him, he'd go in and get that Cherokee Bill's gun. Henry Starr recalled for the curious press what happened next. I said, Bill, you can't get out. Why kill a lot of people? He replied, I'm gonna kill every white man in sight. I'm going to kill you if you come any closer. If Bill had one soft spot, it was his devotion to his mother. I said, your mother don't want you to kill any more than you have already. Why hurt her more? My plea to give up the pistol for her sake touched him. Take it, he said, and handed over the gun. As a reward, Henry Starr had his death sentence revoked. Years later, in 1903, a big fan of Henry Starr's bravery, President Teddy Roosevelt pardoned the outlaw. Once he was safely locked back up, Cherokee Bill laughingly told his jailers, Damn a man who won't fight for his liberty. That's the only thing you really should fight for. Your liberty and your family's safety. You know, those, those two, and of course your nation was under attack. But, uh, but that, that's about it. Everything else should be negotiable. <laughs> you know. If a man's willing to fight for his liberty, how does a man know when to stop? Well, you have to define what your liberty is. See, it's like for, for me, the, my, my liberty is defined as my ability to conduct my life exactly as I please without anybody else having a vote. That's my idea of liberty. If, if the decision makers are deciding against you in, an, in what you think is an unjust way, then you have an obligation to come up with your own code. So then you have to come up with one that also doesn't put you in conflict with the laws so that you're not just walking around waiting to go to prison for the rest of your life. You have, you have an obligation for your justice to not put you away. <laughs> you know, so, so it, it's, it, it's not as wide open as it first would appear. After murdering the turnkey, Cherokee Bill was back in Judge Parker's court for a new trial. It lasted just three days. It surprised no one when the jury foreman read the verdict, guilty. At sentencing, Judge Parker informed Cherokee Bill of his new fate. The sentence of the law is that you be hanged by the neck until you are dead. Cherokee Bill had finally caught up to the fate he'd so furiously chased. The hangman awaited. On December 3rd, the New York Times reported the latest from the Supreme Court on Cherokee Bill's first murder case. The Supreme Court today, in an opinion read by Justice White, affirmed the judgment in the Melton case. Cherokee Bill will hang as soon as Judge Parker gets the mandate from the Supreme Court. Later that spring, the Salt Lake Tribune reported on the last hope Cherokee Bill had for freedom. Saturday dispatches from Washington settled the fate of Cherokee Bill, the most noted outlaw of the fast-receding border. The president's refusal to interpose removes Bill's last possible chance, and he will hang on St. Patrick's Day. 
After Cherokee Bill killed a U.S. deputy marshal, that one act cost him any hope of help from the powerful stranger who had once spoken favorably of clemency. President Grover Cleveland officially backed away from the outlaw folk hero. He left the sheriff's posse, and one was colder still. For he had been pierced by the bullet from the rifle of Cherokee Bill. And when he made good his escape to rot, he went straight away. The people were afraid of him to travel night and day. Cherokee Bill, desperate Cherokee. Cherokee Bill, every day of some daring deed, the newspapers would tell concerning the daring highwaymen. Called Desperate Cherokee Bill The Highwayman Called Desperate Cherokee Bill Georgia Brown was running late to her brother's execution. Judge Parker made the hangman wait. Once his sister arrived, she and Cherokee Bill's mother were brought up onto the scaffolding. They stood with the now 19-year-old outlaw as the hangman's noose was tightened around his neck. The crowd for his execution was estimated to number in the thousands. Cherokee Bill waved to some that he recognized. And then he stepped through the trap, and his neck was snapped. The headline for the March 18, 1896 New York Times article read, Cherokee Bill dies smiling. At 2.13 p.m. today, Crawford Goldsby, a.k.a. Cherokee Bill, was hanged. He was declared dead in 10 minutes. The desperado showed no fear and went to the trap the coolest man in the party. On the gallows, in reply to the question if he had anything to say, he answered, No, I came here to die, not to talk. Turning, he kissed his mother goodbye and with a smile on his face, walked to the place on the trap. The New York Times also noted... Bill got his wonderful nerve from his mother. She stood by him on the gallows without flinching or shedding a tear. Pop, you also taught me not to mistake uh, law and order for justice, because law and order, the other part we often overlook, which is order is determined by somebody, whereas law mm-hmm. is determined by the law books, and justice is determined by the objective sense that we all agree this is just. Do you think that that is a, an important distinction, that, that other people start to understand that law and order and justice are not always the same? Absolutely. The, the, the law, law and order are, are, are just reflections of the momentary set of beliefs. Mm-hmm. All the things I did illegal in 1970 are now legal. I was against the law then. So I was outside law and order. Now I'm not. I haven't changed a bit. But in my sense of justice, I felt it was okay then. And I think it's okay now. So it turns out I was right. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to feel good. <laughs> If you can believe it, Cherokee Bill's story didn't end with his death at the end of the hangman's noose. One year later, his little brother got his revenge against Ike Rogers. Clarence was the little brother that Cherokee Bill defended at that dance, which led to the shooting of Jake Lewis and ultimately to Bill's outlaw life and death. Ike and Clarence crossed paths at a town called Hayden, a site for disbursements of the Cherokee Freedman payments. Rogers had planned to receive his. Meanwhile, Clarence planned to kill him. He missed his chance. Nearly a year after Cherokee Bill was hung, Ike Rogers took a train to Fort Gibson. When Ike Rogers stepped off the train and onto the platform, Clarence was there. And this time, he was ready. As the New York Times reported, It was Cherokee Bill's brother who lay in wait for the informer who had delivered Cherokee Bill into the meshes of a cold and heartless law. When the informer descended from the train, Cherokee Bill's brother fired three shots from a six-shooter into his head. Once Ike Rogers was dead, Clarence reached down and grabbed Cherokee Bill's Winchester from beside the murdered man. It had a heart with a spear through it carved into the butt of the rifle which the outlaw had etched into the wood after the first man he'd killed. Now Clarence had killed his first man. He took the Winchester and ran, knowing his vengeance had been wrought. 
U.S. Marshals were on hand to calm the large crowd of Cherokee citizens who'd come to claim their allotment of money. Memories of the stagecoach robbery by Cherokee Bill may have motivated the Marshals' large numbers. The Marshals were quick to respond. Clarence was chased by a hail of gunfire. He ducked under the still-idling train and he ran off. He escaped in the ensuing chaos, just like Cherokee Bill would have done it. Clarence didn't stop running until he got to St. Louis. He started a new life. He was never captured or ever punished for the murder of Ike Rogers. Most everyone recognized what he had done was what they call justice in the West. Economic justice for the Cherokee freedmen was a different story. During the giveaways of the 1890s, not all the Cherokee freedmen received the allotted money promised to them because of, you guessed it, racism. A lawsuit was filed in 1912 by a Cherokee freedman named Moses Whitmire. When his claim was finally settled, the ancestors of the Cherokee freedmen ultimately did receive their money and their citizenship in the Cherokee Nation was restored. This happened just a few years ago in 2017. The past is never gone. Faulkner was right. Crawford Goldsby's life story is a short but proud example of the life of a Cherokee freedman, the son of a Buffalo soldier and a proud Cherokee mother, a black cowboy folk hero and unmistakably American story. Cherokee Bill was a headline sensation to the newsmen and an outlaw folk hero to the people. Even the president wanted to forgive him. Cherokee Bill lived by his own code, loyal to friends and family, betrayed by his own hubris. He should have listened to his girl. But by then, it was far too late for Crawford Goldsby. For his entire cut-short life, he demanded that he would live and die a free man, like his father before him. It's like Cherokee Bill once said, Damn any man who don't fight for his liberty! I'm Zaren Burnett. Thanks for listening. Coming up on the next episode of Black Cowboys, we'll check in with the other side of the law. Another famed Black Cowboy, U.S. Marshal Bass Reeves. Black Cowboys is written by me, Zarin Burnett. Produced and edited by Ryan Murdoch and Michelle Lands. Our theme song is written and performed by Demeanor. Sound design and music by Jeremy Thal. While in federal jail, Cherokee Bill wrote his own folk hero ballad. I discovered the lyrics in the December 20th, 1895 edition of The Caney Phoenix. Music for the ballad of Cherokee Bill, written by Demeanor and Jeremy Thal. And performed by Demeanor. Additional music by Alvin Youngblood Hart. Research and fact-checking by Austin Thompson, Marissa Brown, Jocelyn Sears, and Aaron Blakemore. Performances by Malika Bobineau, Adam Copeland, Tom Combs, Ryan Murdoch, Parker Anderson. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Executive producers are Jason English and Mangesh Hatikader. And always, special thanks to my pop. Yeah, this a home, it's been a long road for us. We taking ownership over everything owed to us. Royalty, we surrounded by our heritage. Our fist up, cause we proud to be American. Hey, ask yourself what's really in the name. Sitting on a Mustang, riding through the plains. Buffalo soldier, the king of the range. We in love with the cowboy way. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. 
Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work.